When I became a Christian, uh, no one told me what it would cost. No one explained to me what I would have to sacrifice to spend the rest of my life following Jesus Christ. <clears throat> I remember plainly hearing the gospel. I was in Sunday school. Uh, I remember hearing the parts about the love of Christ and the promise of living forever. Uh, I remember the Sunday school teacher telling me all about heaven and hell. Uh, she explained that all my sins would be washed away if I turned to Jesus and repented of my sin and put all my faith and trust in him and followed him. And it was all true. And that is wonderful. And of course, it's necessary for us to understand that. But I'm just telling you, I don't remember ever hearing anything about having to lose everything so that I might gain Christ. But that's exactly what the Apostle Paul talks about in Philippians chapter 3 and many other places in the New Testament. And of course, if you're a Christian and you're trying to share the gospel with someone, all the parts about sacrifice and self-denial and loss, those aren't exactly selling points, are they? And so I, don't, I think when we tell people about Jesus, we tend to focus on the parts that sound the most attractive because the last thing we want to do is scare people away before they even consider following him, right? And look, I understand that. But when you look at the way that Jesus presented himself to people, he didn't hold anything back. He laid it all out there. He, he didn't seem to have any qualms about sharing all of the gospel, including the hardest parts. Listen, right from the beginning. It seems that Jesus wanted people to consider all of it, to count the cost of following him before making that commitment. After all, he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Luke 14, 26. Well, just say what you mean, Jesus. I mean, he didn't hold anything back on our account. And hating, by the way, and most of you have heard me say this, it's the Hebrew word meseo. It was a Semitic expression that actually meant loving less. So he wasn't telling us to hate in the way that we use that word today. But he certainly makes his point, especially considering his audience was a massive crowd of unbelievers. So he opens up with a very strong and challenging statement regarding what it means to follow him. Look, right from the beginning. Okay, so maybe when he goes on, maybe he, maybe he softens the message a bit. Let's see, verse 27. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. <laughs> maybe not. I mean, those aren't exactly comforting words. The cross was a symbol of death. Crucifixion, in other words, if you're going to follow me, you're going to have to give your entire life to that pursuit. You're going to have to die to yourself. Verse 28, for which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost. Count the cost. Whether he has enough to complete it, otherwise when he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war would not sit down first and deliberate whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. What king wouldn't count the cost first before making that commitment? And if not, while the other's a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace, right? So therefore, any of you 
who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. The stark and sobering truth is Jesus and the rest of the biblical authors, for that matter, are crystal clear. You're either all in for Christ or you're not in at all. The truth is there is no middle ground. You understand, uh, there's no Christianity light. There's no preseason. There's no warm-up round. There aren't varying levels of Christianity that we get to choose from. Right from the beginning, from their first introduction to the gospel, Jesus said to everyone that he encountered in one form or another, you're either all in or you're not in at all. Count the cost. You better count the cost. It's either all in or not in at all. What's it going to be? It's, it's an all or nothing proposition. He never held back the difficult or challenging parts of the gospel. He just told people right up front with honesty and clarity what they were getting into if they were to follow him. And yet that hasn't stopped people over the centuries from trying to live their lives partially in, right? Or somewhat committed, willing to give some but not all of their lives to Christ, which is particularly, I think, prevalent in the Western church where our affinity for living comfortably to the point that we try to avoid all discomfort at all times, that is in perpetual tension with the teachings of Christ who embraced suffering and sacrifice and self-denial just as much as he did blessing and abundance. And so we've, we've relegated our identification with Christ to portions of our lives, keeping the other areas of our lives to ourselves so we don't have to feel bad when some of those areas of our lives don't resemble the will and way of Jesus. We have, we have me time. I mean, I, people will text me once in a while and say, hey, pastor, I'm not gonna be in church Sunday. I gotta have some me time. Right, that's so we can focus on ourselves and what we want guilt-free, and then we have God time at church and community group and Bible study and so on, and the result is we live these segmented, disjointed lives with some areas of our lives devoted to God and others devoted to ourselves. It's really an aspect of Hellenism, the, the separation of God from certain areas of our lives. It's not the way it was with God's people originally. It was called holism. God permeated every aspect of their lives. That's another sermon for another day. But listen, one of the real problems with living the way that we do is that the work, the purpose that God created for us and called us to doesn't get done through us to the extent that it should because we're not all in which not only affects us in our own relationship with God, but it affects all those around us who are not experiencing the Spirit of Christ in us the way they should. And I'm telling you, there's a ripple effect to that, as we're going to see in our story today. When we're not all in with every part of our lives, we can actually do more harm to the body of Christ, His church, than good, which is precisely why Jesus cautioned people right from the beginning, those hearing his message for the very first time, that listen, if you're not all in, then you're not in at all. Because we cannot completely follow him without complete allegiance, total commitment in every single area of our lives. Doesn't mean we won't falter or fail, of course we will. We all struggle in our commitment to Christ in certain areas of our lives, but we never stop giving ourselves over to him again and again and again, daily. 
as we work out our salvation with fear and trembling, as Paul says in Philippians 2.12, we continually commit and submit every area of our lives to him because his love and his design for the church, for us, for his people, demands that we are all in. There is no middle ground. And so not only are we responsible to tell people that, of course, all of it, all the gospel with honesty and clarity right from the beginning, just like Jesus did, but we also have to choose whether or not we are going to actually live that way ourselves. Are we all in for Christ or not in at all? Because anything less than all in means that all of this, all the time and effort and energy expended as a community of faith, this local church, all of this will amount to very little. It will just scratch the surface of what could be accomplished through us when we're truly all in. Just uh, why? Because Jesus was all in for you and for me, right? And that commitment that he had for us demands nothing less from us. And in our story today, as we continue to work our way through the book of Esther, we find examples of both. God's people who were not all in and those who were, and the effect of each, not only in the lives of those individuals who were making those choices, but in the lives of so many others who were affected by those choices. And listen, uh, this message should resound in the church today as we are faced with the same choice. All in or not in at all. Let's pick up the story then at the beginning of Esther chapter three. It's where we left off last week. By the way, these are short chapters, so we're going to actually work through chapters 3 and 4 today in order to capture a more complete view of the message in this part of the story. Let's read it together, beginning with verse 1, Esther 3, verse 1. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. Uh, so the Persian king Ahasuerus promotes a man named Haman to the highest post in government under the king. It says that Haman was an Agagite, which is to say that he was a descendant of Agag, who was the king of the Amalekites, the ancient enemies of Israel, which is going to factor heavily into this story as we go. So keep that information in mind as we read on, and we'll come back to it. Verses 2 through 6. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, why do you transgress the king's command? When they spoke to him day after day and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury, but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. So at a casual reading, uh, this whole sequence really is a bit odd. First of all, why mention that Haman was an Agagite? Second, why did Mordecai refuse to bow to him? The 4th century BC historian Herodotus tells us that bowing before one's superiors was a routine part of uh, Persian court etiquette, right? And we hear nothing of Mordecai refusing to bow to anyone else, including the king. So, and he worked there for the king. So apparently he had no problem serving and bowing down to the pagan king Ahasuerus. And later in chapter eight, we see Esther throw herself down at the king's feet. So why would he refuse to bow to this guy Haman? And third, why did Mordecai's refusal to bow to Haman make Haman want to annihilate all of the Jews? instead of just killing Mordecai. 
So this is where the story gets even more interesting and to fully understand it, you have to go back 600 years earlier to the reign of King Saul, 1 Samuel chapter 15, which is intimately connected with this story in Esther, 600 years later, okay? King Saul was the first king of Israel and he was of the tribe of Benjamin, which we see in 1 Samuel chapter nine. And Agag was king of the Amalekites during that same period of time. The Amalekites under King Agag were the first people to ever attack and try to destroy the Jews as a newly formed covenant nation. In fact, these, uh, these Amalekites under Agag were nomadic people and they would frequently raid Israel. So th these were like bitter enemies of the Jews. And as a result of all that, God cursed them, the Amalekites, and ultimately condemned them to extinction, which we see in Exodus 17, eight through 16. So King Saul was a Jew, from the tribe of Benjamin. And in Esther 2.5, we're introduced to Mordecai, a Jew from the tribe of Benjamin. So Mordecai was a direct descendant of King Saul, the king of the Jews. And then in Esther 3.1, we're introduced to Haman the Agagite, meaning Haman is a direct descendant of King Agag, the king of the Amalekites. So the picture begins to become a little clearer as Mordecai and Haman represent the ancient and bitter rivalry between the Jews and the Amalekites. And so when Haman who's identified as an Agagite, so obviously his lineage is known. When this descendant of Agag is promoted and everyone is required to bow before him, Mordecai, the descendant of Saul, stands his ground and refuses to bow to this enemy of his people. It's why when asked by the king's servants in verse three why Mordecai would not bow down to Haman, Mordecai responds with in verse four, uh, he had told him that he was a Jew. In other words, you know why I'm not bowing before him. And so just as the Amalekites were constantly persecuting God's people, even to the point of trying to wipe them out, Haman is now determined to carry on the tradition. Verse five says, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. And remember the Jews have been exiled there. So he wants to wipe them all out. And so Haman wants to rid, uh, get rid of all the Jews. And as we'll see in a moment, he formulates a plan to do just that. But even before that, we see the very first cost associated with Mordecai's stand against Haman. It says, then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, these are his co-workers, why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand. So the servants of the king, those who worked with Mordecai, turned against him because of his stand for righteousness and he loses favor at work, at his job, because he took a stand. And it raises the question for all of us, if following God costs you popularity, are you still all in? Right, for most of my life growing up, calling yourself a Christian in our society was almost like calling yourself an American. I mean, the two just always went hand in hand. But listen, just in our lifetime, we've seen that begin to change in our culture, haven't we? Calling yourself a Christian today isn't nearly as favored a status in a broad range of cultural circles as it once was. It certainly isn't advantageous to claim to be a follower of Christ like it used to be in this country. We've seen the ramifications of that just in the past few years where there has been litigation against Christians who have refused to bow to government mandates that command us to honor policies that are anti-Christ. By the way, for what it's worth, some of that may actually be good for the true church in the end. So I'm not completely even despairing that paradigm shift in our country because in many ways, I think it simply helps to ferret out the wheat from the chaff, the true believers from those who are Christian in name only. The point is though, when that pressure is applied, 
when our favored status at work could be threatened because of a stand for righteousness, when our popularity with friends and peers could evaporate because we refused to bow to the constantly changing moral will of pop culture, when following him has the potential to become costly in the way that others view us and respect us, are we still all in? Or do we shrink back and blend in with the crowd so as not to make waves or compromise our favored perception that others maybe have of us okay when when our popularity and status and respect and treatment from others is on the chopping block because of our Christian testimony the question is will we be all in for Christ or not in at all it comes down really to what we value the most the affection of God or the affection of men right we really need to resolve that before we're in a position where we're forced to answer because if we're truly all in, then when the time comes that you have to choose, you won't hesitate to take that stand for Christ because he is what you value the most. Mordecai took a stand even when his peers stood against him and there were consequences. Let's keep reading as Haman now begins to plot against the Jews. Verses seven through 11. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pure, that is, they cast lots, before Haman day after day, and they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, there is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Notice he doesn't tell him it's the Hebrew people or the Jewish people. Their laws are different from those of every other people and they do not keep the king's laws so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business that they may put it into the king's treasury. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you, the people also to do with them as it seems good to you. So uh, pure or purim, by the way, in the, in the plural is the Persian word for lot. And archeologists have unearthed purim from the Persian empire era. They were clay cubes inscribed with either cuneiform characters, which were sort of these wedge shaped characters used in the a Persian writing system, or the cubes were inscribed with dots, almost identical to modern day dice that we use for gambling and playing board games. So casting a lot was literally throwing the dice. And there were several ancient cultures, including the Hebrews who would cast lots as a way of seeking divine guidance. And we see that in many places in scripture, including Leviticus chapter 16 and Joshua 18 and so on. So that's what Haman, and those loyal to him were doing here to determine the best time frame to carry out his plan to eliminate the Jews. They cast lots, which resulted in Haman having to wait 11 months to see his plan through. And so all that's left now that the time is right is to make his case before the king to gain the authority he needs to carry out a mass extermination of an entire people group uh, in the kingdom. And so as, uh, as people who are skilled at manipulation often do. Haman gives the king just enough information to make his case without providing the details necessary for the king to make a truly informed decision. And Haman is certain to sweeten the deal by assuring the king that if he is permitted to wipe out this anonymous people group from the kingdom, 
the king will prosper materially, which was particularly enticing at this point in Ahasuerus' reign because the king's treasury had recently been depleted, you'll remember from last week, from his failed invasion of Greece. And of course, what Haman was suggesting here was no small bounty. Uh, Again, the ancient historian Herodotus tells us that under Ahasuerus' father, Darius, the annual revenue of the Persian Empire was on average 14,560 talents. So Haman's offer here to put 10,000 talents of silver, that's 300 tons of silver, back into the king's treasury would have been uh, monumental to the king after he'd lost so much in battle. And, and where would all that money come from? Well, from the Jews, of course, as Haman was planning to take everything they had from them. And so we're going to talk about the threat to the Jews' lives in a moment. But first, Haman says, I'm going to take away all that they have. I'm going to take away everything they've worked for, all that they've been blessed with, simply because of who they are, God's people. This is a pattern, by the way, throughout history. Anytime a people group in a given society falls out of favor with the ruling class or the government or the leader of a nation, the pocketbooks of the people being persecuted or oppressed are always targeted first. Why? Because that's a powerful pressure point for most people. And so the next question for us to consider is if if following God costs you your standard of living, are you still in? Are you still all in? Listen, in 1933, under the leadership of Adolf Hitler, laws were passed in Germany, beginning with the Nuremberg Laws, that forced the Jews out of their civil service jobs and university and legal positions in the court system. They were no longer permitted to attend public schools, go to theaters, vacation resorts, or even reside or even walk in certain sections of German cities. The Jews' businesses were seized and destroyed along with their homes. Hitler and the Nazis were taking away the prosperity of the Jewish people simply because they were Jews. This is a common tactic when the leadership in a given society turns against a particular group of people. And so just to bring it closer to home, in our society there are and have been ongoing conversations increasingly in our government and media and universities and court systems about the possibility of uh, repealing the tax-exempt status for religious institutions, including the church, just as one example. And again, we've already seen the government levy significant fines against Christian business owners who refuse to honor laws that violate their beliefs. And by the way, we can debate whether or not we agree or disagree with those decisions, and those discussions are ongoing, and that's fine. The question for us now, today, to answer is, if following God begins to cost you your standard of living, are you still all in? Okay, I mean, ask yourself, if I no longer could receive a tax credit for the money that I give to my church, would I still give the same amount of money? Because the day of that changing may likely come in our lifetime. So what will we do if our standard of living is somehow compromised because of our stand for Christ? If your job security was ever threatened just because you're a believer, if your business was taken away or shut down by the government because of your Christian testimony, if you were denied entry into certain positions or educational opportunities because you refused to accept immoral policies forced on us by the court systems in this country, are you still all in? Look, these are questions that that I know they may seem far-fetched in our free country, but the reality is some believers are already being forced to make those choices. Will our church 
be forced to close its doors one day because the giving dries up when our tax-exempt status is taken away? Or will the church thrive under public and government discrimination for our defense of the gospel? Are we all in or not? Again, if there's any positive that comes from such persecution, it's that the true church always rises up from those who are not all in. There's typically a purging within the church of Jesus Christ when persecution comes because those who are not committed believers walk away under the pressure. It's not worth it to them and only those who are truly all in remain, which is exactly what happened in the church in Germany under the Nazi regime. You know that most of the official Christian church in Germany supported Hitler and the Nazi party? It was only a remnant who bravely stood against him in the evil of the Third Reich Right? They remain true to the gospel, and because of that, they suffered great persecution. Listen, they were all in. And as a result, they saved thousands of lives and changed the world forever as they stood firm for the cause of Christ. Listen, no one remembers the names of the cowards. No one remembers the names of the cowards, the church leaders who traded their convictions for the comfort and security and acceptance of following the path of popularity and prosperity. But I'm telling you, the bookstores are full of books written about those who stood firm for Christ and forged a difficult path for others to follow as they stood against the evil tyranny of that regime. Because it's those who are all in who make a real difference in this world. Let's keep reading now as Haman's plan is set into action, verses 12 through 15. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month and an edict according to all that Haman commanded was written to the king's satraps and to the governors over all the provinces and to all the officials of all the peoples to every province in its own script and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, And the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel, and the king and Haman sat down to drink. But the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. I mean, can you imagine? The king agrees to Haman's plan, still not truly understanding the possible ramifications of his decision, not the least of which would be the death of his own wife, who is, of course, a Jew, but he doesn't know it because she's never told him. They're now six years into their marriage, when the decree to destroy, to kill, to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. Interestingly, the 13th day of the first month, the day of this royal edict to wipe out all the Jews was written. That was the very eve of the Jewish Passover. So again, as I've mentioned before, the story of Esther is rife with prophetic symbolism and foreshadowing of the salvation story of God's people all the way through the Bible, which of course culminates with the work of Christ on the cross, right? This entire story points to the much larger story of the gospel and what is impossible to ignore in this part of the story, if you're paying attention, is the connection again with the story of King Saul and the Amalekites 600 years earlier. Okay, in 1 Samuel 15 verse three, 
God says to King Saul through the prophet Samuel, now go and strike Amalek and devote to uh, destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. In other words, kill everyone and everything. No prisoners, no survivors, no mercy, not even the animals. Complete annihilation is the strict instruction given to King Saul. It's called the Karim principle in Hebrew, which is hauntingly similar to the edict of King Ahasuerus under the goading of Haman to destroy, to kill, to annihilate all the Jews, young and old women and children in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, uh, and to plunder their goods. No prisoners, no survivors, no mercy complete annihilation. Just as the pagan king has issued instructions to wipe out the Jews, Saul centuries before had strict instructions from the king of kings to completely wipe out Agag and his people. But if we skip down in 1 Samuel to verse 5, it says, Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, go depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites, and Saul defeated the Amalekites, the rest of them, from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and most certainly his family and the best of the sheep and the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless they devoted to destruction. So Saul defeats the Amalekites but he doesn't completely annihilate them as he was instructed to do by God. First of all he left Agag the king alive, along with the best of the livestock, all that was good and would not utterly destroy them, according to verse nine. So the best of the Amalekites and all that they had were spared. The Kenites were spared. Uh, king Agag, his family was spared. Certain animals were spared in direct disobedience to the command of the Lord. And we don't have time today to continue reading that story, but if you read on, you, you'd see that Saul pays a heavy price for his disobedience. He's rejected ultimately as king by God and King Agag at least was killed by the prophet Samuel. So in the big scheme of things, okay, what's the big deal? Right, the Amalekites were soundly beaten even though they weren't totally destroyed. David eventually becomes king and Israel prospers. prospers. I mean, it doesn't seem so bad from 600 years earlier until you fast forward to this story of Esther and you realize that Haman is a direct descendant of Agag, whose family was spared because of Saul's disobedience. Okay, Haman is alive only because of Saul's refusal to be all in. And now the result of Saul not carrying out the command of the Lord to completely annihilate the Amalekites, the result is that an Amalekite is now attempting to do precisely to the Jews what should have been done to them over a half a millennium earlier. Saul was not all in. And the effect of that was still being felt 600 years later by God's people. I'd say that's a pretty big deal. Samuel goes on to explain to Saul to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. 1 Samuel 15, 22. Okay? God's command is for us to be all in. That means we listen and we obey. Because as we've seen with Saul, we're either all in or we're not in at all. There is no middle ground. And unfortunately, the effects of half-hearted, half-committed, unresolved people to God 
are just as damaging to the church today as they were to God's people then. And the stakes are getting higher every day for the church. We cannot be half-hearted, half-committed, unresolved believers and expect the church to continue to thrive in the current cultural climate in this country. And certainly not, not in the days to come. In fact, I believe that the future church will be made up of only those who are all in because those who are not will not be able to withstand the pressures that are brought to bear on the church as our society becomes increasingly intolerant of the gospel. People will find excuses to leave the church and leave the faith. It's happening all around us every day right now. Okay, let's move ahead to chapter four. It's only 17 verses long, so we'll read through it fairly quickly and then focus on a couple more quick points for our message today. Uh, so we're going to read chapter 4, verses 1 through 3 to start as the city of Susa and the Jews throughout the kingdom are spiraling into total chaos and confusion. I mean, imagine if the government showed up at your door and said, on Tuesday of next week, uh, you and the rest of the neighborhood are going to go down the street and kill these six families, your neighbors, your friends. Right. So Susa is in total chaos. The Jews are finding out that the death sentence has been pronounced over them. And their non-Jewish neighbors, many of whom held nothing against the Jews, were friends with them, are told to prepare for a mass extinction and execution of their friends and neighbors throughout all of the provinces of the kingdom. Let's read it, verses 1 through 3, chapter 4. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city. And he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and lamenting. Many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. So the word is out. The Jewish people are fasting and weeping and lamenting. By the way, to tear your clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes was a traditional Near East practice in ancient times. It wasn't just limited to the Jews. In fact, uh, Herodotus records that the Persians tore their clothes when they were defeated by the Greeks in the battle at uh, Salamis. So it was a bit of a universal way for people to signify that you're in total mourning, which the Jews were, of course, here in our story, for the fate of what was about to befall them and who wouldn't be, right? And everybody knew it because they knew uh, by what Mordecai had done. So let's keep reading, verses four through 11. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her the queen was deeply distressed, she sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. And Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction that he might show it to Esther and explain to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. That seems reasonable. And Hathak went out and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. So Mordecai explains to Esther by way of Hathak that she has to go to the king to beg his favor to plead with him 
uh, on behalf of her people or all the Jews are gonna be killed. Seems totally reasonable. But then Esther replies, all the king's servants and all the people of the king's provinces know, meaning you know this, Mordecai, that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there's but one law to be put to death, except to the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter that he may live. But listen, I haven't been called to come to the king for a month, Mordecai. I haven't talked to him in a month. In other words, what you're asking me to do is certain, certainly a death sentence for me. And remember, the king doesn't yet know that Esther's a Jew, so at least for now, she would appear to be safe unless she follows Mordecai's instructions here. Now, just put yourself for a minute in Mordecai's sandals, okay? His fellow Jews' lives are being threatened with total extinction. And if that isn't bad enough, Esther, who for all intents and purposes is his daughter, she's actually his cousin, but he's raised her as his daughter. And obviously by reading the previous chapters, we see this mutual affection and admiration and deep love between them. And now the only possible chance for survival is for Mordecai to ask Esther, this girl he has raised and nurtured and loved and protected to risk her own life in the process by approaching the king without being called and pleading with him to repeal the royal edict that he has approved and sent out and even had a drink over with his best friend. And he knew exactly what he was asking Esther to do. And if the plan works, he and his daughter and the Jews are spared. But if it fails... Everyone dies. The stakes could not be any higher. It's all or nothing. There's no middle ground. Put yourself in Mordecai's position and then ask yourself if following God costs you the safety of your family. Are you still all in? I mentioned it last week, the missionary families with small children who answer the call of God to go to some of the darkest and most dangerous parts of the world to share the gospel. We commend them. We even encourage and support them with our money. But what if it's your family? What if it's your daughter or your son or your wife or husband? Are you still all in? Or is that the line in the sand? Because look, God doesn't always call us to safe and secure. And yet in our culture, we're so risk averse, particularly when it comes to our families, and I get it. Can we truly say that we value our relationship with God more than we do our relationships with our family members? I know these are tough questions, but we have to decide whether or not we're all in, because if we are, that may well mean risking our own safety and the safety of those we love. If God calls us to a place of ministry or a point of action where the outcome is uncertain, we watched it last week on the screen with our missionary family. Little kids, they could be killed just for preaching the gospel. Remember what Jesus said in Luke 14, if anyone comes to me, and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. What do you think Jesus was talking about? He was saying, listen, you have to love your family less than you love me if you're gonna follow me because I'm gonna ask you to do some things sometimes. You're not gonna know what the outcome is and it may not be the safest thing for your family to do. Just look at the lives of those who were all in for Jesus throughout the scriptures. Some of them were in and out of incredibly dangerous circumstances throughout their lives as they answered the call of God. I, I can't imagine 
weeping Mordecai here in such a seemingly impossible predicament, and yet Mordecai was all in. Right, and we see uh, his response to Esther. Let's read it, verses 12 through 14. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But if you and your father's house will perish, and who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. This is an unbelievable faith that Mordecai displays here. He doesn't know what the immediate outcome of his actions will be. He knows what's at risk, but he still has the faith to believe that in the end God will prevail. In in, uh, ancient rabbinical Hebrew, God was often, by the way, referred to as the place. It was a common phrase to refer to God. And so when Mordecai says to Esther that if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will rise from another place, he's probably making a direct reference to God. Either way, he clearly has the faith and wisdom, even in this incredibly difficult situation, to understand that what's happening may all be a part of God's plan. As he says to Esther, essentially, look, I know you might die. We may all die. But who knows? This may be the reason you became queen to begin with. In other words, God's divine purpose will ultimately prevail, Esther, no matter what happens to us. I mean, what a stunning response and what faith. I mean, they had the means. They could have packed up and hightailed it out of town. What faith, what insight to trust God for the outcome, even not knowing what the outcome would be. See, Mordecai was all in. And he was asking no less of Esther because he trusted in God enough to be willing to risk the safety of the one person on earth whom he loved more than any other. So the tables turn. And Esther must now make the biggest decision of her entire life. Is she going to be all in or not in at all? Let's see what happens. Verse 15 to the end of the chapter. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. And so Esther agrees at the greatest risk to herself to go to the king, and in doing so presents herself once again uh, as a foreshadowing of the Christ. As Jesus said, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, Matthew 10, 28. And like Jesus, she offers her life for the sake of her people because Esther was all in. There was no middle ground for her either. It was all or nothing. In fact, when Esther, this is amazing. When Esther says, and if I perish, I perish. If you look at the Hebrew construction of that phrase, the Hebrew word asher, it it carries much more of a sense of when than it does and if. So when I perish, Mordecai, I perish. She was resolved to go to the king believing that she was most likely going to her own death. It is clear that even if it meant her own life, Esther was all in. She left no room for doubt in answering Mordecai's request. And I just wonder how we would answer given the same circumstances. If following God cost you your life, are you still all in? And the key, I think, to being able to answer yes to this and really do all of these questions 
is found in Mordecai's assertion to Esther in verse 14 when he asks her, who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. In other words, Esther, you, got, you have to stop looking at your immediate circumstances as dire as they may seem and focus instead on the big picture. God has a plan and you're a part of it. But in order for you to fulfill your part in that plan, you have to be all in. Because there's no middle ground. Even if your entire life is hanging in the balance, do we have the courage and resolve to say, if I perish, I perish because I'm all in? Because I'm telling you, we're going to have to be if we have any hope of influencing the culture around us rather than trying to imitate the culture around us. We're going to have to be all in if we have any hope of saving others who are lost in this world by snatching them out of the fire. We're going to have to be all in if we have any hope of seeing the next generation in the church boldly proclaim the gospel instead of compromising it for the sake of popularity. Because if there's no conviction... No passion, no power in us to stand up and say, if I perish, I perish, I'm all in. If we don't have that kind of commitment and resolve, is it any wonder that an entire generation is walking out on the church? As you see, in many cases, the church in America has become half-hearted, half-committed, unresolved, and ineffective. Listen, Jesus didn't die for a half-hearted, half-committed, unresolved, and ineffective church. And whether we ever experience life-threatening persecution in our lifetime or not, we are called to give up everything, our very lives, and follow Jesus Christ, which is exactly what the next generation needs to see in us. Remember, Jesus said, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. That's what the Apostle Paul was expressing when he said, I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. Listen, we have to be really careful about this whole self-love thing that's going on in our culture right now. You have to love yourself first and all of that. Be very careful. Paul said, I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Yeah, you can love yourself right into hell. Because you're so focused on yourself, you lose sight of Jesus Christ and every other person he's put in your life that you're supposed to sacrifice for. How many of us can say this about ourselves? I do not count my life of any value nor as precious to myself if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received. You see, when Esther said, if I perish, I perish, she was saying, I do not count my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and finish the ministry that I received. It's called being all in. And it's what he demands from each of us because he didn't die for a half-hearted, half-committed, unresolved, and ineffective church. No, I'm telling you, he's looking for men and women who have counted the cost, fully understanding what they're signing up for and without any hesitation are ready to say, I am all in. Let's pray.